This week, we're happy to welcome Angus Haywood. Angus is a photographer, lives in the south of England. I met Angus last year when I went to see the Michael Kenna exhibit in Bosnum. Uh, Angus, it's very nice to see you again. Hello, Kirk. Nice to talk to you again. Thank you very much for having me. And hello, Jeff, in Seattle. Hello. Thanks for coming on. Angus is here to talk to us about film, about shooting film, about uh, building a dark room and making prints in the dark room. And in some emails recently, you were telling me about how you've just built your dark room yep. and how enjoyable it is to be in the dark room. And this is something I've heard from a lot of people who actually who work with film that they find the process in the dark room to be more interesting than the actual photographic process. But first, tell us about building your dark room. How much work is it? How complicated is it? Um, it's a lot of uh, prior preparation research and so on. Um, I did actually have some um, tutoring in the dark room a few years ago, but to a limited amount because I knew it would be hard to get access to a dark room where I lived. Plus, I was working abroad as well. And over this last year, um, as you know, I was uh, working in a gallery, Bosom Gallery, down on Chichester Harbour. And I was surrounded by Michael Kenner's work. And gradually, it seeped through like osmosis into me. And I became more and more aware that I could go from digital print to silver gelatin print somehow. But I didn't have his experience of 45 years, 46 years, or other Charlie Waits, 50 years of experience and others. I was going to have to try and do it somehow um, and maybe take some more tutoring or dive in myself and just try and work it out as I went along. And that's how it worked because of uh, COVID and all sorts of things. It's ended up me self-teaching myself and making my own mistakes in the gallery and enjoying that aspect quietly away from everyone else <laughs> and finding my groove. And after a couple of months, I popped out sort of happy with uh, the quality and the direction I'm going finally. But I did come from printing digitally with lovely um, Carbon Inks, Peatsography Pro. But it would be fair to say there is a difference between, as you know, between Silver Gelatin and um, Pixography Pro or any digital um, prints, especially if you're in a gallery um, surrounded by them all day. And there is that sense that digital is tattooed on the paper, as good as it is. And uh, Emulsion does have that little depth to it. So I wanted to compare the two, and I plunged in um, with going ahead with a dark room rigging it up as best as I could. So I have to take um, water down there, for instance, uh, and I power electricity in various ways uh, across a lane or by solar power or a little suitcase generator. But I've got it going and I've actually framed prints. So it's been a lot of work and a lot of research. So where is this darkroom located? So... Um, in my cottage here in West Sussex, across okay. the lane, there's a paddock. And uh, back in the winter, I started building a foundation for it. I uh, had a feel for the size. And it's about five meters by four. And it's a black angular shed, um, which is insulated with foil, aluminum foil uh, material. And I got electricity cables running to it, or as I said, now solar power now to a limited way. So everything's jury rigged. 
and it will have another form in the future with uh, its dry and wet side more slick. But I wanted to take advantage of this COVID period to just get something up and running. And then over the years, I will improve it and think about it more. Most people, when they start out, they do it in a closet or in a spare room. You actually went and built a, a shed to use as a darkroom. Yes, well, I'd looked in online for other proper dark rooms up and running in um, uh, private homes, clubs, that sort of thing. I couldn't find any online in a wide internet, and I was getting a bit frustrated. Uh, I thought, uh, once I did my research over weeks and weeks, a few months, I thought it is possible, and I've always got a shed at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and I've designed it to be portable as well in a strange way. So theoretically, it could be cranes and the uh, base could be removed. It's uh, one of these eco bases. Um, so uh, I was wanting to, um, I had a sense of just diving in to try it and not spending an enormous amount. So it's not like an office that you'd work in. It's a, it's a minimalist place with everything um temporary at the moment you know on um, camping tables i've even used a black and decker mm -hmm. uh workbench but everything is blacked out it's all black inside um cloth everywhere it's very happy and it's it all works surprisingly yeah a dark room isn't that complicated you need the what do you call them basins for the chemicals you need the enlarger right. you need a place to hang the prints um, I, my first experience with photography was when I was in high school. Um, you had to do a shop class in high school, and, and this could be wood shop or metal shop or, or auto shop where all the jocks would go and take the car apart and put it back together. And they had a photography shop, and I found it really interesting. Um, but over the years when I was shooting film, and I would go to – I would rent darkroom space in New York City because um, it was very common. Um, dark rooms are really somewhat minimalist to start with, aren't they? There's not a lot yes. of gear in a dark room. Correct. So you're down to an enlarger. I have a very manual enlarger. And uh, you know, I have about four trays running, including, and then I have a big um, tub for like a pre-wash, you might say, before I bring them inside for further washing in, into the cottage. And... Um, and then I have uh, some filing on next to the enlarger, and I've got lots of uh, detritus and dodging tools and burning everything. So, and it, it's accumulated, accumulated a little bit. And of course, I've got a little music system in, in there as well. Of but, course, uh, I, of course. Which you do need, you know, um, if you're listening to late at night. And I have been at one or two in the morning, happily not seen the sun down, go down or anything with. Uh, I don't know, Eric Sarti piano on, and in my own little world, in my cocoon of red, <laughs> red yeah, light. That's right. So if, if, you've, if people have never been in a dark room, you use red light because that doesn't expose the paper. Um, so after a while, you get this weird feeling like you're in a submarine. Yes. Yeah. So and hours really will go by is quite surprising. Um, but you are working hard, concentrating and feeling productive, actually. And you have to go through this process and um, keeping print logs I do as well for every print as well so that I'm, I feel as though I'm making some progress in the right direction. So you record your settings and the timings and, and how long you develop, etc. Yes, it's still a sim 
part of the simplicity of the process. But I, I knew quite early on that if I was inexperienced as a printer, I'd have to uh, record everything and then not there's so many variables, I would limit the variables uh, that I would start changing. So I, everything was recorded, timed, and then make one small adjustment, say a grade change, and then um, enjoy the effect or discard it. And you might go up to eight prints for one negative, but then that I'm happy with that, it's done, and then everything speeds up if I need to replicate again. And that will set me up for years to come, especially as I get more experience. Um, I could come back to something in five years, have a look at my print log. I think, for me, that was the only way to do it. Otherwise, you are going to inbuild some frustration in with your whole process unless you know ex because of what you've done before. And in my case, I can't always remember what I've done in the earlier half of the day, if I'm flipping <laughs> between negatives, let alone the day before. So, and I find it works really well. So it's a sort of a discipline to it. So you said you've worked in digital before. Um, yes. Here you're shooting film and yeah. you're printing film. How long have you been shooting film? It, we must mention you shoot Hasselblad. Yeah. So these are not your average um, no. standard cameras that everyone uses. No. Were you using digital Hasselblads before and moved to film Hasselblads? I never could afford a digital Hasselblad. And it was quite something to afford the Hasselblad kit. So I actually started off, uh, I think it was in the 80s. My father gave me a Russian Zenit camera and uh, which I broke soon after. Um, and then I was quite soon onto a Mamiya C220. And for those who might not remember those, it's a six by six. So I was straight into film, a um, medium format. I was looking for higher quality from 35 mil quite early on. And I liked the square format uh, compositionally. And then um, I stayed with that for years and years and years. I was always angling for a Bronica or something. And it wasn't until I was, uh, in my previous life, I was an airline pilot, and I could actually begin to think about affording um, a Hasselblad, uh, a simple one. I just wanted a 500 series. But I was, to me, I was buying the lens, the Zeiss lens yeah. uh, range. And I knew, and I was a great admirer of Faye Godwin and later uh, Michael Kenner and others. Michael Kenner quite late on, actually. Um, and... There was something about those Zeiss lenses. So even though um, I might have been aspiring for a Bronica, I was already had my eyes on the Hasselblad is kind of a Rolls Royce. And um, when I was looking, just a, not that long ago, probably 2014, maybe a bit before, um, it was reasonably priced to buy a kit and a few lenses. I believe they've all gone up again now. <laughs> <laughs> so I... I uh, and, and that's what I'm happy to stay with at the moment. But everyone can, must expect some change at some point. I might go on to colour. Um, I might like a digital back. I have many problems with light leaks. I've just about solved them now. But when you're in the field, there's all sorts of complications when you've gotten, you're working totally manually. And sometimes I am envious of people with digital backs. <laughs> so, so color is a totally different process in the darkroom. Yes. Are, are you developing your own film as well, or are you oh, just yes, printing should, the negatives? Yeah. yeah, so I am developing, um, uh, sorry, processing my own films, and I'm just back from Germany. Only yesterday I finished 
the last of 21 rolls. So that took me quite a few days in the gaps. And uh, that is another process at the moment I quite enjoy, but I can see already in a way it's something you want to farm off to others uh, just for the time and uh, mess sometimes or inconvenience because it is a long process to do. And it's not in a way it's not creative for me at the moment. It's but I still enjoy it. I, there is something about it. Only I get to see them coming out of the tank wet and ready to hang up in the filing cabinets. And already I'm editing in my mind, and looking forward to printing them. And even better when I see them dry the next um, morning or so. So, uh, yes, I'm doing everything at the moment. And include, and I do actually um, dry mount the photographs sometimes at the, um, at the uh, picture framers because uh, he taught me on his big... Uh, Demco Press. So I do quite a lot from getting up in the morning at the right time right through to the end to dry mounting <laughs> them. The only thing I'm not doing is the glass and the framing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, you can't but, do everything. You can't do um, everything. But, but you you are actually you, you're involved in almost every step of the process, and yeah. that gives you a better feel of what you're yeah. doing. And when we talked to Michael Kenner recently, he said he just sends all his film out to different labs around the world. He doesn't care about developing it. And, and I know that developing is more a question of measuring chemicals, getting the timing right. Um, it's precise. It's not creative, um, yeah. un, unlike uh, you know, printing, where you do have this creativity of you're looking at a negative. How do you want to do it? Do you want to dodge and burn? Do you want to overexpose, underexpose? Um, you have a lot of latitude in the printing process. Yes, yes, you do. Uh, Michael, though, having uh, spoken to him, he's doing about 500 to 1,000 rolls, isn't he, per year? Not during 2020, of course, but yeah. uh, um, he just cannot... Um, spend uh, half his life processing anymore. I know he would have done it much, much in the past. And I'm sure there are many other photographers like that. At the moment, with the number of roles I'm doing, I can just about um, do it. But I can. it is something I would farm out to others in the future, um, just to gain a bit of time and uh, on other things, so around the house <laughs> as well. Most so, people, when they talk about shooting film, they do it because the... The inherent slowness of the process, the intentionality, yeah. is that what interests you in film? Um, yes, I knew it was there, and now I'm actually doing it. I'm enjoying that even more than I thought, the craftsmanship um, of from start to finish, actually. Yeah, and, and I mean, even the even taking the pictures, it's a different process. Yeah. You don't just point and shoot. No, no, no. It's um, a slow, considerate pro pro process. Um even getting up in the morning, having your breakfast, you're beginning to consider um, that uh, process before you uh, even get out of the car later on in a one or two hours or something, or the hike up to the hill. Even the hike up the hill, I'm beginning to get into it and think about it for might be a compressed time of 15 minutes actually taking the photograph. Sometimes it might be two hours up there or even longer discovering a little area. In Germany, um, that was the first time I'd really um, gone round that country in detail. It's normally been a country I've um, transited across. And I had planned a number of locations. So they've been in my head since about April or May. 
I originally had 238 locations. Obviously, it can't. <laughs> you can't <laughs> wow. uh, be hopping around the country doing any service if you've got 230. So I split it in half in a sort of southerly and westerly um, Germany. And even then, I started, um, once I was in the country, I started joining the dots in a different way and might be losing one here because you have to think of what time of day you're arriving. And also, some skies are blue and that's no good to a black and white photographer always. Sometimes you need to time it when there is some more interest in the sky. But anyway, it all worked out. I'm very happy with the uh, 21 rolls so far. And uh, I'm just glad I finished it last night. So, so, what is, so what is the process? You're using a light meter? Um, yes. You're metering very carefully? Are you using filters? Yep. Um, since yep. you're shooting in black and white, are you using you know, red filters to bring out the sky or green filters yes. or whatever? Yes. Uh, very often um, it'll be your orange and your red. And a standard would be the yellow. Um, and again, it's just around contrast. Sometimes I might want to slow um, a shutter down a bit, you know, so you've got uh, a red and a neutral density of 10 stops or six stops and uh, but generally it's an artistic decision i see a sky and say a bottom third of land with trees or a chapel or something i'm thinking mostly about the sky i already know um, uh, red will bring out what i perceive as the interest that others might see as well um, in the sky and only a red filter can do for it, do it for me at the moment. And, uh, and other times I might do one in orange and one in red and see what we have. And then there are longer exposures in between those as well, which might be 20 seconds, two minutes, 15 minutes. You don't know what you're going to get. I think that's quite commonly said. Um, but the filters are very much part of the creative um, thinking now. And even, surprisingly... When I'm driving the car, walking, I'm still, my head <laughs> is thinking in square. And it has done since the 80s. Even when I was flying for a living, looking uh -huh. out the window, and you're up amongst the clouds, I was still thinking in square, looking at cirrus clouds, um, you know, icy, wispy, white horses. And I'm still thinking of a red filter or an orange filter. And I haven't stopped doing that since the 80s. And uh, uh, so you never switch off. It's just perpetual. What is the attraction of the square format? Um, uh, yes. To bring up Michael Kenna again, he mentioned to me um, something about the fact that you don't have any preconceived ideas that are imposed by a shape, that the square format is, is more, more free. So yes. you're, you're, you don't have the, the, the landscape or the portrait mode that's going to affect the way you look at something. Is that what you like about it? Very true, indeed. And of course, you've all still got the option once you compose to make it into a portrait or landscape format once you crop it down. But yes, I absolutely love looking through that square ground glass and composing diagonally. And sometimes you get the oddest compositions, but they do work in your mind, may not come out eventually like that. But um, you're not just thinking about the rule of two thirds you could be rule of two thirds and a diagonal element, and it just seems to work with square. I've I always found thirty five mil rather restricting, um, not just because of the quality, but just because of that format. And 
that's why I was I do have a six by seven camera um, but I originally got it to crop it down to six by six it's a Mamiya um, 72i and um, but again even that's a slight deviation from square my favorite and I think also because I was admirers of a square format photographers like Faye Godwin and others when I started getting interested in photography, particularly in the 80s. And then, of course, Michael um, Kenner, um, who I got to see in books and magazines. And, you know, it's just reinforced my love for thinking in square, square format. Well, that's the thing, though. There, there's something about black and white photos in the square format mm. that there seems to be a lineage of it. And, and you yes. don't see that as much in color. You don't see a lot yeah. of square photos in color. Um, I think it's more that black and white photography with the sort of, um, what would you call it, like a Rolleiflex type camera um, that was shooting square kind of developed in a different way than, than the 35 millimeter black and white with different types of subjects. Is that a fair thing to say? Yes, actually, I, I, would, I know it works for landscape, but I, I can't say for sure. Does it work for documentary or um, reportage or something? That's mm -hmm. quite interesting. I think it's widely used in uh, portraiture, isn't it? Where I was watching yeah. programs like Norman mm -hmm. Parkinson and others, and Hasselblad's featured heavily. Um, and but um, you know my genre is landscape I'm always thinking about landscape I know it works um, I can't say I've thought enough about um, uh, whether it works for those other genres um, to the, the pitch it does for landscape in its history and uh, I, I do want to be part of the continuation of um, um, using square if uh, and I'm sure other people enjoy it as much as me I mean I enjoy other people's landscape well square became fashionable with Instagram so yeah. lots of people use square even though they're not intending to do it it's just yeah. what happens either they're yeah. taking a picture with the Instagram app or they upload a photo and they don't realize that you can crop a photo that you can uncrop the square and yeah. and get your photo in a different aspect ratio Wait a minute. There was Square before Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true that Instagram did bring Square into, in, in, into the, the common concept of photography. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I actually, I'm quite new to Instagram. Um, it was actually Charlie Waits. He came into the gallery and uh, he was incredibly enthusiastic about discovering Instagram and uh, uploaded a lot of his photos. And I began to think about it more. And I do like the simplicity. I'm already doing square, obviously. And uh, I like it a lot out of everything now. I think it's my favorite out of the social medias. And um, uh, I hope they don't have any other shapes. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you can. You, you, it automatically crops to square if yeah. you, let's say, if you upload a 3-2, but you can tap a thing or click a thing to get it yeah. to the right aspect ratio. Um, yeah. Which, as you've seen, the photos that I shoot, I'm a three to aspect ratio obsessive. Yeah. And yeah. if I had a square camera, I probably wouldn't be. Um, yeah. But one thing that I like about the three to aspect ratio is it's closer to what we see in reality. 
We don't yeah. see in square. We see in, say, anywhere from a 3-2 to a 16-9, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So square is an intention that's changing the field of vision um, yeah. almost radically, in fact. Yes. This is, um, it'd be interesting to hear from a psychologist how the brain is wired optically um, and how it thinks about square. But I do know, artistically, it does work, doesn't it? It works in paintings. Um, it definitely works in a black and white landscape. But uh, I, I'd have to give it some more thought, actually. But it, it's a natural thing to me now to, when I'm looking through that... Um, viewfinder my eye is dancing around diagonally and uh, horizontally and vertically uh, it's not a it's not a simple thing um, to compose and you're making minute adjustments and it is that challenge within the square that uh, you know once you it's got to balance um, with textures shadows um, lines forms everything and you're making the very first um, um, decision there in the field and you've got a little bit of a chance to make some more um, later in the dark room but I suppose if I was trying to explain to someone if I was out in the field it'd be quite hard to do um, and uh, in a way that it might instinctively understand a landscape format um, as we are naturally set up aren't we our eyes as I listened to your last podcast is that are set at around f8 <laughs> and in a landscape <laughs> format and, yeah uh, yeah but i don't go around in landscape format as i said earlier i never stop going around without a square in my uh, head <laughs> yeah. so you're just finally now starting to print your own yeah. film so previously you were shooting in film, but what did you do? You scanned? I was the... scanning. Yes, yeah. I was scanning. And I will still scan these ones uh, from uh, tomorrow, probably tomorrow morning. And it will take, oh, God, probably a, a week and a half, maybe two weeks at an hour apiece. And then uh, that's available to go on the website in reduced form. But also in the future, say I want to uh, print digitally, I do have an Epson 380, uh, 3880 printer with Pizzography inks, solely dedicated to black and white, um, John Cohn's Pizzography inks. And so I still have that option, but I'm not expecting to. Um, but that's how I did it before, as a, on this little journey to discover which way I want. But I really changed when working within the Bosn Gallery, just absorbing the beautiful silver gelatin week work, you know, month after month. I thought, well, possibly for my style of photography, that would be the way to go if I can find a way of uh, um, getting the um, experience in the darkroom at short notice <laughs> and uh, so I threw myself into it and I'm quite happy already but I've got a long way to go so you mentioned how you you see in square you're thinking of compositions as you're driving to a location and also uh, you talked about you know using filters and visualizing there as you've been working in your own dark room are you also thinking more about the, the post-processing that you're going to do than you did before while you're shooting i mean 
while I'm shooting, yes, I was thinking about this in Germany when I was standing up on in on German meadows and on hillsides. It says because I'm now going to be in control in the dark room. Um, am I thinking in a different way about uh, the composition or the length of time I want to photograph? And I think I was slightly, and it'd be interesting to see how this develops. So I was already. It's not, I wouldn't say it's pre-visualizing the whole thing before I've gone there. It's, it's just when I'm, I've got a sense of the long exposure and I'm already, while I'm waiting to uh, close the leaf shutter, I'm thinking maybe I'll burn that in the dark room mm-hmm. once I see what I have. But then, of course, once you get the negatives, you get a slight surprise here and there. I do, for one location, I might do three shots. I mean, it's not quite bracketing. It's more likely to do be different lengths of uh, time and with a different filter. But uh, or I might do six, depending on um, um, how enthusiastic I am about the sky having more character. Or as as I love clouds, I do like to use um, sky a lot. Um, and yes, yeah, so it is a consideration now, and I'll be interested to see myself um, where it takes me. This. Um, I should have asked Michael Kenner <laughs> when he, if it had affected him over the years. Whether uh, probably he would say yes. So um, uh, when he's out in the field, it does affect um, his eventual printing style. Yeah. I can imagine that you're visualizing the entire process, and as yeah. you say, you'll get the negatives. Maybe it's going to change, but and even what did you say? Twenty-one rolls of film. How many yeah. photos on each roll? Twenty. Twelve, twelve. Times so you, you come back with two hundred fifty odd photos. You're no. not going to remember them all. No. Yet when you see them, there is something that's going to come back in your mind. Yes. Especially if you've got multiple photos, as you say, with different filters or different times. Then this is going to remind you of what you were thinking. Of very, course, you could also take notes while you're doing it. Very true, Kirk. I don't take <laughs> notes, but I seem to have um, a slight photographic memory when I see the frame again. Uh, and I mean the story, not necessarily the visual on the day and mm-hmm. what settings I was using. Um, but all, I can remember every person I met. It might surprise you how many people come up to you when you're using Hasselblad. And, really? Um, you, and, of course, it's a slower process, so you're there for longer and approachable. Um, so and we'll, even in the gallery, we learned that what really helps photographs if you can remember a story that goes with them because a photograph plus a story if you have to write or speak about it is is doubly interesting than the photograph it's on its own of course most photographs um, if they're in a gallery can stand on their own but when you want to talk or sell a photograph it really really helps and I'm always interested in other people's stories even in interviewed Michael Kenner and many other photographers you know the really interesting stories across, say, 46 years of um, photographing Mont Saint-Michel uh, or uh, that uh, Kasharo Lake tree uh, that he made famous. It's the yeah. story behind it. And I'm more conscious of that now. I'm sort of absorbing those uh, uh, little stories, those feelings and the people I meet at the same time I'm photographing. And it's actually made it an even richer experience when I'm out there. And uh, I can think of, uh, I was photographing a chapel down near Bodensee, Lake Constance, uh, uh, in a meadow. And a lady 
was quite shyly came up to me. Um, turned out she used to photograph uh, six by six, quite a young lady. And she was just on her daily hike um, back to her village. And now we're good friends or, you know, contacting each other. And it's wonderful that, that experience out of nothing. Um, mm. And uh, so I love that aspect of it too. So that I can straight away link a negative to the person or that experience very, very strongly, actually. So even yeah. right back to the 80s, I can remember that very moment. So, yeah. But you said people come up to you because you're using a Hasselblad. Is it yes. that noticeable or is it yeah. just that there are that many photographers uh, around the world who have seen Hasselblads and are curious? I think it's a different shape, isn't it, and yeah. uh, to a digital camera generally. And a lot of some people have thought it's a video camera. I'm out filming because <laughs> ah, fair point. Because you're, usually, so you're yeah. using a tripod, yeah. Yes, exactly. And it's a it's a shape once it's got a longer lens on, and uh, and it's got that crank on the side like the yeah. old film cameras. <laughs> yeah. And I've got a megaphone as well, um, but um, <laughs> the. It's just, I think this, it might be something, I notice every generation actually, and it's something about, because you're uh, wandering around it and setting up, setting it up, and you know, you're doing things around a Hasselblad in a way, looking over it, under it, beside it, and um, you're there longer, people, mm -hmm. it just looks already as though there's some craftsmanship to it, that's what I've felt when I've seen um, you know, uh, documentaries on photography, you look at people in the past like Ansel Adams and all those um, great landscape photographers, this, the whole setting, if it's actually filmed what they're doing, the whole setting up of it is quite a palaver. And you obviously a craft to even get anywhere near um, making an exposure. And maybe with my little Hasselblad, people just recognize there's something going on. It's a bit different than a, than a point and snap. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone with a Hasselblad. We get a lot of Chinese. We used to get a lot of Chinese tourists here in Stratford, yeah. and I do see red dots on a lot of cameras. Yeah, um, but you don't see people setting up a Hasselblad on a tripod. No, That's you something don't. I haven't seen yet. I must say I haven't bumped into anyone else, but I've it's certainly been recognised um, on the top of an Italian mountain last winter on Monte Baldo. Quite a few thousand feet up with a 50, 40 mile an hour wind like today, actually, and um, below, well below freezing. And a group of three were walking their dog on the very crest of the mountain. And I couldn't believe it. She recognized it as a photography <laughs> student from, my, you know, down in the valley miles away. And we had a nice long conversation about it. And she was so pleased to see one again out of the blue. So it does happen. And um, But I haven't bumped into anyone um, with one out in the field. Uh, and actually, I don't quite often, you know, I don't really bump into other photographers. It might be um, uh, it's just some locations I'm choosing or times of day. So only once or twice have I crossed over self-consciously and then have to wait for them to do their work. You know, there's a code, isn't there? So, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I, maybe I will see Hasselblads in the future dotted all over the landscape. I don't know, as it becomes uh, more fashionable, you might say. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. Angus Haywood, thank you very much for joining us. This is very enlightening. Um, links in the show notes to Angus's website. Uh, do check out his photos. There's some wonderful stuff there. Um, we'll link to your Instagram if people want to follow you on Instagram as well. Um, Angus, thanks again, and I hope we'll meet up again soon. Thank you, Kirk and Jeff. Lovely to chat to you uh, about it. Okay, it's time for our snapshots. What have you got this week, Jeff? I've got an application for the Mac. It's called Avalanche, and it's by a company called, I'm not sure how to say this, Syme, C-Y-M-E. And Avalanche is a tool to let you convert old libraries, like, say, Aperture libraries, because Aperture no longer works under the most recent version of macOS, to convert your libraries from uh, something like Aperture or iPhoto into Lightroom, or now they have it for Luminar. And it's basically an, an automated version of stuff that I describe in my book, Take Control of Your Digital Photos. And it's it's using machine learning in some way to keep the edits that you've made. I haven't used it extensively yet. I've done a few sort of smaller tests, but it seems to do a really good job. So if, like me, you have some old Aperture libraries that just haven't been brought over yet... Uh, this is definitely something to check out. You can download a free version of it, and a license starts at $59 um, for Avalanche for Lightroom. They also have Avalanche for Luminar. There's Avalanche for Capture One. Or for $119, it's uh, you have Avalanche Unlimited, which lets you sort of do any of the above. So if I understand correctly, you've got a photo in Aperture, and you've made all these edits, and it's going to bring the photo into something else with the same edits? So in other yes. words, you can continue editing it in, say, Lightroom? Yes. To what extent? I'm not sure yet. It may just be, be creating like, like an edited version, but it seems to be having the smarts enough to say, oh, okay, this has been uh, like, like the black and white conversion has been set to this and i think i'm going to say this out loud because then i'll be proved wrong <laughs> i think <laughs> it's then uh making a, a similar edit um if if nothing else you're still retaining an edited version of what you had and it, you know it's keeping all the metadata and all, all of that good stuff kirk what do you have this week um i have uh, how can I say this? An idea, a technique, um, a, a tip. I've been shooting a lot in high ISO lately. Um, as as you know, I like to shoot in black and white. And we've got Fujifilm cameras that has this wonderful film simulation called Acros, which is meant to uh, mirror the Fuji's Acros black and white film. And I've realized how wonderful it is to shoot at high ISO to get grain in photos. And Acros is actually quite interesting about grain because it's not just an overlay of grain the way you'll get in some photo editing apps. The higher the ISO, the more grain you get. It's not just adding noise, it's increasing the grain. It's really quite clever the way they do this in Acros. So I've been shooting a lot of photos lately at a minimum of 1600 ISO, but often higher if it's not too bright out. I'm shooting with a, a pretty small aperture. And I'm finding that 
the the beauty of grain that is just something that you get in film that you don't often get in digital. And I'm thinking of all the people who use sharpening and noise reduction on their photos in digital because they want them to look so bland. Whereas with grain, you've got a texture. You've got you've got almost three dimensions, like we were talking about in silver gelatin prints. Two and a half dimensions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. In a future episode, we will have an opportunity to look at a bunch of photos that I've shot and that you've shot um, during the month of August, and you'll see that all of them have been using a minimum ISO of 1600. If you're the kind of person who wants everything to be pin sharp, try for a week or two using high ISO. Um, get get the natural noise in there because cameras these days even if it's not a fujifilm camera they're a lot better with noise at high iso than you know five or ten years ago there's something to appreciate about that that rough texture that you can get from high iso one thing that i'm going to be looking forward to is seeing the difference between noise and grain because i think a lot of people think of them as the same thing and they're really not and if you have a lot of noise it's a completely different visual appeal, even if in the outset you just say, oh, well, that's, that's noisy or it's speckly or, or something. So I'm looking forward yeah, to if this. Yeah, you, if you zoom in on these photos, you can see that it's grain and not noise. And obviously it's getting noisy when you're getting up like 6,400 ISO. But yeah. when you're in that sweet spot between, say, 1,600 and 6,400, it's a really film-like grain. Anyway, you'll see really soon. <laughs> Excellent. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.